Hey, thank you guys. Um, I know a bunch of you were praying for me as I uh, was sick, and I am doing better. I'm a little bit weak. Uh, if I pass out, uh, don't worry about it. Just wait a few minutes. I'll wake back up and we'll keep going. Um, but uh, no, thank you guys for being concerned, and I am feeling a ton, ton better, uh, and glad to be here and back studying uh, the Scripture with you tonight. Hey, just a couple things, uh, let you know, keep you guys all current on things that are going on around here. Uh, coming up at the end of October, uh, we're going to be doing something that we haven't done for a whole long time around here, but we're bringing it back. It's a thing called Harvest Festival, and uh, we're going to be inviting uh, the entire community to come on our campus on Halloween night and just really saying to them, why don't you just come take a look and realize that uh, we don't shave our heads around here. Uh, we don't make people go sell flowers in the airport. Um, we really are normal people, uh, just like you. And the hope is that a moment like this is, is what we would call kind of a come, come and see moment. Come see that we're just not that strange. And, and maybe we're the type of people you'd want to be friends with. And so the hope is, is that literally just thousands of people from our community will come onto this campus and just get a first taste to find out that this is a safe place and an okay place. And the hope is that when God is moving in their heart, when that moment is right, that they will feel comfortable coming here to have the conversation about God. So we're going to be doing a Harvest Festival again, October 31st. We're going to be inviting you and asking you to help us do that uh, by bringing a bunch of candy here. Uh, we're going to be doing booths, game booths for the kids. We're going to be asking you to help run and, and host game booths, hosting security, setting up uh, everything that's going on, helping us tear down, uh, even hosting that night as simply as just to help people find where the bathrooms are uh, on this campus. But uh, it's going to take all of us uh, working together. But we think an incredibly powerful night to just tell our community, hey, we're here. We care about you. We did this as a gift for you. And when you're ready to have more of a conversation about God, this is the place uh, that's safe to come and have that conversation. The other thing I just invite you to, uh, to do is, would you be in prayer about kind of our finances and our offerings? Um, we went through a season right after we finished the financial series a little while back where our offerings were actually pretty good and we were doing well. And the last three weeks, our offerings have been off. And literally, we are running so tight that being off just a little bit has a deep effect because we're, we're living hand to mouth uh, right now. So I'm just going to ask you to pray about that. I'm going to trust that everybody in this room is being faithful uh, with their finances and with their giving. But I'm going to ask you to pray for the rest. And uh, I get the moment that we're in. I get that there are people who can't give, uh, that literally... That's how devastating their employment is, right? And they just, there's nothing to give. Uh, and we've got some people like that within our congregation. I know there also are others who are afraid to give. That in this moment and in this climate, it just feels a lot safer to hold it back and see how things turn out. And you get, um, that's a huge decision in my life when I decide to trust what I can hold in my hand more than the God who holds my hand. And that for any of the people that are in our congregation who in this moment are living in fear, that God would just challenge and convict their hearts to overcome fear. 
And then the other part I am going to ask you to pray about, and this is going to be a little bit outside the box, I'm going to ask you to pray that even those who are being faithful would consider being generous. You know, in the book of Acts, when the church was first starting out, when it was struggling, they found themselves in a somewhat similar situation. And there were Christians in the church who couldn't get employed because they had named the name of Jesus, and the church was in financial crisis. And in that moment, Christians said, this isn't about what's my fair share. This is about doing what we need to do. And they responded in that moment with generousness. So I'm going to even invite you to consider praying and say, God, is this a moment in which you're calling me to be above and beyond in my generosity? So, and again, guys, I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm not here trying to put any guilt on anybody. I'm just simply saying, would you pray about it? Would you pray about what's going on, what God still wants us to do and needs us to do as a church? And that those people who are who need to step up and be faithful, God would call them to it. And those of us who've already given to maybe consider being extra generous in this season. Hey, let's have a word of prayer and uh, we'll just start studying together tonight. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we, we simply come to you in this moment and, and just ask you that you would honor the fact that we came out on a night. There were other things we could have done and we chose to be here to study scripture to look in and to grow and to mature in our faith. And so God, we're just going to ask that you would honor that, that literally your word would come alive for us tonight, that we would walk out of here and say, I know God's word better because of the time that I invested. And God, we just invite you to guide us and direct us, help my words to absolutely reflect the truth of scripture. Don't allow me or my ideas to get in the way, but instead that what you've said would come first and foremost and right to the front of our conversation tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I I don't know, do we have mic runners designated yet? Okay, so there's one mic runner, so if we have another one, all right, there's another one. Oh, and you got, oh, okay, you actually have them in your hands. Okay, good, all right. And you're going to turn, if you will, and face the audience. I know that's intimidating, but you need to be able to see them when they uh, raise their hands, and then they need to make eye contact with you. And Okay, all right, we're good. And so again, just want to remind you, if, if we're starting to go past something and you've got a question, raise your hand. Um, feel free to do that. If you can think about it, please wait till the mic gets to you before you ask the question, because they're actually recording this. It's gonna, it's, it goes on iTunes. Some, anyways, one of those things that's smarter than me. And if you... Uh, ask a question and it doesn't go across the mic, then all of a sudden they think I'm just rambling uh, aimlessly uh, in this in the session tonight. So, all right, I think you guys got to First uh, Corinthians chapter two. Is that right? So apparently Mickey blew you know right on and uh, covered more verses in one night than I had probably covered in five. So uh, good for that. Let me ask a couple questions as we get ready to uh, dive into chapter two. Uh, as you came to the end of chapter one. Did you spend any, did you talk at all defining some of those words that happened in there? Did you talk about righteousness at all? No. Okay. So let me ask this question. What is righteousness? Okay. So it's doing it again. Okay. There it is. All right. So that's as close as we're going to get righteousness. Okay. What, what is righteousness? Who defined that for me? Good. All right. You know, you need to know if you give the wrong answer, we just make you stand up and be embarrassed. That's all. But uh, anybody want to take a stab at righteousness? Okay, here we go. Oh, we made it all the way there. There we go. Never mind that you walk past five people with their hands up. That's okay. That's all right. They, they don't feel too bad. All right. 
Okay, I would say it was what Jesus did for us on the cross. Okay, it it's is not what, what we do. Okay, it is what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's not what we do. So you're dead on with that answer. And what 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 does? In other words. Once we receive what Jesus did for us on the cross, once he makes us righteous, what does that mean to be righteous? Blame. Huh? Without blame. All right. Without blame. Okay. I'll take that. What else? I would say to be aligned with his spirit. Okay. To be aligned with his spirit. I'll go there with you. I think it's interesting because it's kind of both righteousness, meaning you've you're there with Christ, but you're also seeking him. So I feel that righteousness is when I am looking for his spirit, seeking him, but I'm not perfect yet. Right now I feel that I am righteous as I seek him. Okay, so we're going to come back to that because you actually catch what she just said and there's actually a, a, a level of that that you and I want to catch tonight. And she's saying... There's a part of this in which I am righteous. There's a part of this in which I seek righteousness. If I am righteous, why do I have to seek righteousness? Isn't that interesting? And yet Scripture is going to ask both things. It's going to say, hey, you are righteous in Jesus Christ. Seek righteousness. Okay, so back here. I was just going to say in right standing with God. Okay, there we go. All right, so probably the easiest definition for you to remember, guys. And guys, again, one of the reasons we're defining these words is that you and I have spent a lifetime reading through Scripture. We read this word. We're familiar with it. And so we breeze on through it. And we don't know what it means. And probably the easiest definition to hang on to is right standing with God is righteousness. Right standing with God. Now, here's the question. I used to be in sin. When God made me righteous, how far does that take me? In other words, let me, let me ask this. If I used to be with sin, this is where I was. Okay, I was a sinner. What does it mean to be made righteous? At the end of the day, is my account even? In other words, did, did Jesus get me back to zero? Or did he do more than that? What does it mean to be made righteous? Further than zero because he also forgave any of our future sins. Okay. But let's, let's, let's say that. Let's say that. Let's say he forgave my past. He forgave my present. And he forgave my future. But if he did that, if, if that was all he did, then I would be at zero. In other words, he took me and I was a sinner. I was in debt. In other words, I had, I had, a, I had something I owed God that I could not pay. I was unrighteous. When Jesus made me righteous, did he bring me simply back to zero? I would, I would say it took you beyond uh, zero because with God leaves uh, your heart a desire to do good for others, to do right by God, you know, okay. to serve Him. How far beyond zero does God take me when He makes me righteous? Um, according to me, uh, once uh, you're taken back to zero, He gives you the Holy Spirit. Okay. So that's and, good. All right, so can I be... A, 
Can I be at zero and have the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there. He also promises that uh, we are to not just be without sin, but to inherit his kingdom. Right. So we no longer have our sin in our life, but we have Christ's righteousness in us. So if Christ's account, let's say if we're talking dollar signs, not only are we take him back to zero from debt, but we also have, if Christ's righteousness is a million dollars, then we have Christ's righteousness, which is a million dollars put into our account. Okay. All right, so grab your Bibles real quick. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Actually, let's start in verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Verse 17, guys, you should have underlined in your Bible. Here's what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what does it mean to be in Christ? I'm born again. I've made that decision. I knew I needed a Savior. I asked for a Savior. I accepted the gospel. Okay? He is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All of this is from God. Why is that important? All of this is from God. What did we talk about two weeks ago? That we can't do it alone. You don't do it yourself. You didn't get baptized to get this. You didn't do church membership to get this. All of this is from God. Okay? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What does it mean that you and I have the ministry of reconciliation? He reconciled us to himself by Jesus, hanging on a cross, dying for us. And then he gave to you and me the ministry of reconciliation. What's that? Huh? Share Christ. Tell the gospel. You realize your and my job is to tell our neighbors, to tell people living in a, to tell people about this incredible story of how you can be reconciled to God, made into a new creation. He, this is our ministry. It is our reason for existing. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words, he takes Jesus, who has no sin, puts all of our sin on him, so that in him we might become the what? Righteousness of God. Jesus did not just take you and I back to neutral. When Jesus died on the cross and when he made you and I righteous, guess what he gave us? His righteousness. So that when God looks at you today, He sees the righteousness of Jesus on your life. He didn't just take you back to neutral. He gave you the righteousness of His Son. Now guys, that's amazing. That's remarkable. Because you and I just didn't get stuck at zero. We went into the same right stead with God 
the same right relationship that only the Son had ever known before this. You were made right with God. That's big stuff. Okay? All right, next word. Uh, Holiness. What is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? Okay, there we go. We've got a couple. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Set apart. Set apart. Holiness simply means this. There are things which dishonor and hurt the heart of my God, and I will set my life apart from those things. I will not let those things which hurt my Savior be part of me. I will be separate from that holiness. Which, guys, here's the the reason that's important. Our instinct as humans, especially when it comes to this topic of sin, here's the question we always ask. What's the most I can do and not be sinning? So, you know, what, what our inclination naturally is, you know, I mean, what can I watch on TV and it not be sin? Because what we want to hear is that definite, and then we're going to, we're going to do, we're going to hang our toes over the edge of whatever that line is. I, I'm going to get as, you know, I'm not sinning. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting as close as I possibly can and not doing the wrong thing. You, you get that's the wrong answer. It's like a kid that says, what's the least I can clean up my room and get my allowance? That, that's, that, that's in essence what we're doing with God in that moment. We're saying, God, what's, what, what, what's the minimum I can do? If your child was really, really grateful for their allowance, how would they clean their room if they were grateful? They'd clean their room with all their heart, wouldn't they? If they were grateful. And if you and I were grateful for what Jesus had done in our lives in making us righteous, in setting us apart, would we ever ask and say, God, what's the minimum, what's, what's, the, what's the closest I can get to my old life and the way I used to live and the way I used to hurt your heart? What's the closest I can get without getting you mad? Or would we in gratefulness say, <laughs> I, I, I'll just stay far away from that stuff. The stuff that wounds your heart and saddens you and destroys your children. I'll just stay as far... Remember, ready? I will stay set apart. I'll live holy in my life. It's a different stance. It's a different attitude. The other word that meant stand Okay, how is apart. holy different than the other word? I don't remember what <laughs> it is. All right. I've got a feeling probably the, all right, so the other word I'm guessing was probably sanctified. Okay, we said that sanctified is the process of growing in Christ. It's the steps I make to become more like Jesus. Okay, that's sanctified. So in some ways, you could almost say these are holy steps. These are decisions that move me further into holiness. Here's what I guarantee. Here's what I guarantee about it. How many of you have been Christians a year or less? 
Okay. How many have been Christians three years or less? How many have been Christians five years or less? How many have been Christians longer than five years? Okay. Bunch of us. All right. So those of you that just raised your hands, I've been a Christian more than five years. How many of you would also raise your hand and say, there are things I was doing my first year of being a Christian that I no longer do anymore. How many of you would say, there are things I did my first year of being a Christian that I no longer do anymore, but the first year I was a Christian, I had no idea they were wrong. Okay, sanctification. And it's interesting that that if you're fairly new in your walk with God, there are things right now that you've got going on, you just do. You've got them going on in your life, and, and, and you've got language in your life right now that you have no idea. I was, sitting, I, was, I was sitting at the front of the church. It's been a couple years, and the gentleman doesn't attend here anymore, so it's, it's, it's okay. He lives, he lives somewhere else. And, uh, but I'm, stand, I'm, st- I'm sitting at the front of the church, and he's coming and talking to me. He just became a Christian like six months before, and he's just saying, man, this is the best blankety-blank church I've ever been to. And I, 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 it's just so fun being a blankety-blank Christian. And I'm going, you are, you are, you know, you're... You're going to be somewhere someday and you're going to remember this conversation with your pastor and you're going to go, oh my goodness, what did I? In the midst of the conversation, he turned and looked to the back, saw another guy from his construction site and yelled across the auditorium, what the blankety blank are you doing here? You blankety blank. See, there's, there's things... That you do today that you go, I, I mean, that's okay, it's all right. There are TV shows you watch. There just are. There are ways that you treat people in your life. There's looks that you give your spouse. That as you do this, as you grow in this, you'll begin, the Spirit of God will begin to say to you, you know, that's not how Jesus would have looked at his spouse. That That's, that's, that's not the type of that's not the type of joke that Jesus would have told. And you go, wow. You know what? I think you're right. And you'll make a decision on that day to be a little bit more like Jesus. You'll move further in holiness. You'll move further in sanctification. You'll become more like Jesus with each of those decisions. That's the call. Some of you are sitting in this room right now and you're going, well, that sounds really nice. But you know what? I've gotten to about right here and I'm pretty satisfied. I think I'm pretty much done. (laughs) Good luck with that one. Because what you need to know is, is that God will not be content to leave you where you are. He will do whatever is necessary to make you more sanctified. And whether that's to spank you or whether that's to bring trial into your life, he doesn't care. Because at the end of the day, He will make you like Jesus. That's His goal. That's His plan. See, some of us, some of us right now are sitting, and I know that we talked about, some of us are sitting here tonight and we don't have jobs, or some of us are struggling with different things. Some of us have got health concerns. And we're in this moment, we're sitting there going, why, why is that happening to me? Well, how come? I thought when I gave my life to Jesus, everything was supposed to be okay. Who told you that? That's a lie. Anybody ever heard someone say, hey, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will? 
Anyone ever heard that? It's a lie. It's a lie. Matter of fact, if you read your Bible, we're going to talk about this on Sunday a little bit. Aren't the very best Bible stories about people who were living scared out of their minds because of what God did in their life? Talk to David as he goes out to see Goliath. Talk to Daniel when they drop him in the lion's den. Serving God's not safe. And you and I somehow think that that the Christian life is supposed to be a life of comfort. It's not a life of comfort. Matter of fact, any true follower of Christ will give comfort up. Because it's, ready for this? It is never comfortable to be like Jesus. Jesus ends up on a cross. And you will wear in your life the scars of becoming Christ-like if you are a fully devoted follower of Christ. It's called sanctification. So why am I unemployed? Why, why is my kid sick? Because at the end of the day, you'll be more like Jesus because you live this moment. And in the economy of God, that's more important than whether or not you and I make our next house payment It's more important than what our friends think of us. It's more important than whether or not you lay a couple nights having a hard time getting to sleep. God would say, we're going to be like Jesus. And I will do whatever is necessary to sanctify you, to grow you up. Okay? All right, last word real quick. Redemption. What is redemption? Forgiveness. Okay, forgiveness is surely part of it. So we're in the right ballpark. I've been bought back. Being bought back. Okay, redemption. This is a tough word for us because you and I don't have a real equivalent in our culture today. People in the time of writing the Bible understood redemption. Here's why. How many have heard of debtor's prison? Okay. Back in the day, you ended up not being able to pay your bills. Here was the answer. We will throw you in jail, and you will be in jail, and then we're going to count every day that you are in jail for a buck. And when you get done serving enough days in jail to, in theory, have paid off your debt, we will let you out of debtor's prison. And the only way, because now you're in prison, you can't work your way out. I mean, what are you going to do in jail to earn money? The only way you ever had a chance of getting out of debtor's prison was if somebody redeemed you. If somebody who loved you, one of your family members, a close friend, came and paid your debt and redeemed you out of debtor's prison. And all of a sudden, when you and I hear that, we go, oh my God goodness. That's exactly what Jesus did. You and I were in debtor's prison and he redeemed us. We couldn't have paid that debt off. We couldn't have earned a penny while we were there. We couldn't have done enough good things. And instead he redeemed us out of debt. Redemption. Okay. And guys, I'm just telling you the reason we're spending time on these words is these words are going to make the Bible come alive. If you and I will remember what they mean.
Okay. All right. So chapter two, here we go. Let's dive in. First Corinthians chapter two, starting in verse one. This is Paul. And here's what he says. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquent or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Okay, it's, a, it's an interesting passage. Let's go back to verse 1. Paul says, when I came to your brothers, I did not come with eloquent or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. And let me ask you a question. Could Paul have come with eloquence and wisdom? Could Paul have come with persuasion? What do you think? Why do you think Paul was equipped to come with persuasion and eloquence? I think um, he was um, he was equipped because before when he was called Saul, he was a Pharisee and he learned under Gamaliel. That meant that he was good, he was eloquent, as well as wise according to the eyes of men. Okay. So he was gifted with that uh, talent. Okay. So and it's a great point. You remember Paul in his previous life was a Pharisee, which you got to understand, fear of Pharisees, we, we've got this so backwards, guys. We, we've, we've equated Pharisees with hypocrites. And there, there's a reality to that because what had happened is these guys had made their religion all about how they behave and not about the heart. But here's what you need to know. Pharisees were the theologians of their day. And the reality is, uh, if you want to look at the lifestyle that a Pharisee had, those guys shame us. They shame us. A Pharisee, when, when they got ready to count their tithe, would take the seeds from their crop, and here's what they would do. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one for God. One, two, through the whole bag of seed. Because they weren't going to short God one seed out of that bag. Now, the interesting thing about it is they weren't going to give God one extra seed either. But they were going to follow the letter of the law. Paul is a Pharisee. He's one of the best theologians. Matter of fact, we know he's one of the best theologians of the time because he was invited to sit on the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was composed of the 40 best theologians in all of Israel. And Paul is part of the Sanhedrin. Scripture. How much Scripture comes from Paul? Almost the whole New Testament. He is our theologian. This guy is the guy who understands this stuff. And yet he says, guys, when I came, I didn't come trying to persuade you. I didn't come trying to bowl you over with all my knowledge. Let's keep going. I did not come to you, still in verse 1, I did not come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ... And him crucified. So what, what does he say? I, I spent all my time talking about what? what? What do you just say? Jesus and his death on the cross. 
I didn't do theological debate with you. I didn't go back and mill all through the Old Testament and give you a whole bunch of proof texts. I didn't write the book of Romans to you. I just simply told you this incredible story of a God who comes to earth, who loves you and me so much, he would not let you and I miss out on him. So he stood in our way and we got so mad at him, we killed him. He said, all I told you about was Jesus and the cross. That's all we talked about. Okay. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Does that sound like Paul? Weakness, fear, much trembling. How many people said that doesn't sound like Paul? Why not? Why does that not sound like Paul? What do we know about Paul? Paul was a tax collector and he was pretty tough on the early church. Okay, Paul probably wasn't the tax collector. Okay, that would have been Matthew on the deal. Um, Paul was also the person that used to kill all the Christians. Paul's the, remember Paul? Paul's, Paul's the assassin. Paul's the guy who was killing believers. He was going into town, rounding up the believers and slaughtering them. This guy's not timid. This guy's bold. As Paul goes in his ministry, once he becomes a Christian, what are some of the things that happened to Paul? Anybody remember? How many times does he get beat with rods? Anybody remember? Twice. How many times does he get stoned and left for dead? I think twice. Shipwrecked. Bitten by a poisonous snake. Run out of town after town after town. This guy's not timid. Why does he come to this church, Timid? Wasn't, uh, he was speaking to the Corinthians, so they would have spoken in Greek, and that wouldn't have been his native language. And they were also very focused on argumentation and philosophy. And so he was coming to them from a very different background than what they uh, were used to. Mm-hmm. I, I, think he probably, and I think he probably was okay on Greek. I think, you know, at the time, Greek would have been the common language. Koinea simply means common language. I think he would probably been pretty verbose, especially a guy as educated as Paul. Here's, I'll toss it for you guys. Here's what I think is happening. I don't think he's talking about being timid and, 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 and being trembling because of that's how he's feeling in his heart. I think that's the posture he takes. I think he simply says, look, 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 guys. I, I know you guys are really smart. I know you guys have got all this figured out. I know you guys have already got all your own gods. And I know, I know you guys aren't looking for another religion. Could, could I just ask a couple questions? Could, could I just kind of insert something in the conversation, let you think about it? Because I think what Paul knows at the time is if I go in there and try to bowl these guys over, if I go in there and start pounding the pulpit, if I start standing on the corner and yelling at chariots while they go by, I'm going to turn these guys off. You ever met that Christian? Have you? Anyone ever met a Christian you thought, boy, if that's what all Christians are like, I ain't going to be one. They're jerks. You know, I I mean, I I simply asked a simple question. All the next thing I knew, they took the King James Bible and they were beating me up with the thing. And I think Paul assesses the moment, assesses the situation and says, boy, if I go in there and just beat the holy snot out of these guys with Scripture, if I try to go in and argue them out of their heads, they're never going to get this. 
I'm going to simply take the simple story of Jesus and I'm going to give it gently. What might even look timidly in order to give them time to figure this out, to get to the right conclusion. Sometimes people will ask us at our church and they'll go, hey, Lynn, how come we don't do altar calls every single Sunday? How come we don't sing just as I am like 14 times and say, look, I know somebody out there is a heathen and when you come down, then we'll close the service. It's kind of this answer. That, that, that we know that if every time you invited a person who didn't know Jesus in the room, we bushwhacked them or twisted their arms or beat the holy snot out of them until they made a decision, they probably wouldn't come back. And it probably maybe not even be a real decision. And that there are moments when it's more powerful to take what is true and say it gently. Because if it's true, it'll end up convicting their hearts, won't it? Won't it bother them on their ride home? And won't the Holy Spirit just work them over with it? So they can be, if they're going to be mad, they can be mad at God and not mad at the preacher. See, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes you've got to be bold with the gospel. Don't get me wrong. And you can't be afraid. And, but sometimes, giving the story of Jesus in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit that says, I know you don't agree yet. I know you can't forget. I, I know you're struggling. with. I know this sounds crazy to you. But if you'll stay in the room, if you'll keep having the conversation, you'll figure out this is true. This will come alive in your life. And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here. I knew if I came in as a Bible thumper, I'd turn them all off. So I came in as a servant and I came in with gentleness so that I could get a hearing. I don't think he's saying he compromised the truth. I don't think he's saying he left anything out. I think he's saying I came in a spirit of meekness so that if they got mad, they get mad at the gospel and not mad at the servant. And not because he's worried about himself. He just doesn't want to turn them off to the gospel because the servant was obnoxious. Does that make sense? Okay. I had, a, I had a guy who was coming to Cornerstone years and years ago. And his wife would come every single Sunday and say, you've got to pray for my husband that he'd be a Christian. And she was just so over the top. She was such a Bible-thumper Christian. You know, we know what we're talking about, right? Bible-thumper Christian. And this poor guy, every time he left church, on the way home, she's just like, did you get it? Did you get it? Are you going to pray yet? Are you going to pray yet? Finally, one day I was, I was out to lunch with her husband. We'll just call him Steve to protect him. And uh, I said, Steve, I, I know. I know your wife's been praying for you. We've been praying for you. What do you think? Are, are you ever going to ask Jesus in your heart? You know what he said to me? I already have. I asked Jesus in my heart nine years ago. And I said, why haven't you told your wife? Because if I told her I was a Christian, she'd want me to be a Bible thumper like her. Sometimes we turn people off to God in our delivery, not necessarily over whether it's true or not. I think Paul comes with gentleness because it was the right thing to do in this context to let them have time to figure this out and not Bible thump them.
Okay? All right, so here we go, going back. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear. How much time do we have? Where are we at? Anybody know? We got 15 minutes? Or we're 15 over? Huh? We got about 15. Okay, so here we go. All right. I resolved in him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration of God's, the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul here says, look, I didn't try to argue you into the kingdom. Now this is interesting. Because let me ask you a question. At the end of the day... Is the Christian faith logical? Isn't that a great question? Is it logical to be a Christian? How many people say, you know, I'm not sure it's logical to be a Christian. Okay. How many say, you know what, I I think it's logical to be a Christian. How many say, I am absolutely terrified to answer that question. (laughs) Because you're going to make me look stupid. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you. I'm going to suggest that it's an absolute misnomer. When we say to people, look, being a Christ follower is simply a leap of faith. It is. It is. But it's the most logical thing you could do. That I'm going to suggest to you that if you will truly explore the claims of Christ, if you'll truly study Scripture, that it will logically take you to the edge of a cliff in which you say, okay, I'm here, there's a gap, there's some stuff about God and how this works and how in the world God can be three and one and how can there be a God who always was there and nobody made him and he has always existed. I don't, I I can't, I, I cannot explain that to you. How can God be outside of time so that time never, did you realize that when God looks at you and me, he sees you and me inside our mother's womb And he sees you and me 90 years old. And he sees you and me today all at once. Now, how does God... I don't know how God does that. I can't explain it. There there is a gap. There's a part of this that because of my human experience and my limited knowledge, I cannot explain that part to you. But I can get you all the way to there. If you take any other world system, whether you want to call that a religious system like Hinduism or Mormonism or any other ism, or if you want to take evolution and you begin to logically line it up, the problem is their cliff stops all the way back here. Let's just take evolution for a second. Evolution is going to tell you that this world's been here for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years and that, and that little snakes crawled up into trees and when they got to the top of the tree, they leapt out of the tree and they hit their tummy and when they hit their tummy, it felt bad. So the snake said to himself, I think I'll crawl up the tree again and I'll leap out of the tree. And then they started growing wings. So now you had a little snake jumping out of the tree and he had flapping and it wasn't work, but they, and each time they did it and the wings finally grew. And after millions of years of jumping out of trees, the snakes, they, poof. Do you know where the evolutionist tells you that uh, whales came from? Cows. Cows swimming in the ocean. 
the cows were apparently not content in the pasture and they kept swimming in the ocean and pretty soon their nostrils moved to the back of their heads. That's a pretty good one. And and guys, if that's not silly enough, I mean, if that's not just bizarro enough, okay, the reality is, is that if that had truly happened, there would be a fossil record. You realize there would be snakes with little nubs. You know, there wouldn't just be one or two snakes with nubs because it took them millions of years. There'd be millions of fossilized snakes with nubs. There would be all sorts of cows with nostrils between their eyes trying to get them back to the back of their... There'd be millions of transitory fossils. Guess how many transitional fossils there are in the fossil record? Zero. Even Charles Darwin said, the biggest condemnation to my theory is the lack of any transitional fossils. And here's what he said. I am confident that in the years to come and with research, they will be discovered. Well, guess what, guys? We're 120 years later, and guess how many we found? Zero. And even Charles Darwin had the integrity to say, that is an unscalable problem to my theory. So here's the answer. When you take the logic of any other world system in theory, their logic gets you this far, and now when you have to take your blind leap of faith and say, all right, all right, all right, all right. So the, the world came together because of a big bang. And the big bang happened because there was gas floating in the universe. And the gas, for some unknown reason, began to compress. It began to close in on itself. And it, it, it closed in on itself to the point that it, it then was uh, unstable and it exploded. And you ready for this? Every planet, every star in the universe was formed from that gas and that explosion. So God, let me, how much gas would you have to compress to make the mass of every planet and every star in the universe. That's a lot of Taco Bell. <laughs> and at the end of the day, here's my question. Okay, 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 okay. Who made the gas? That's a lot of gas. Who made the gas? And I'm going to tell you that it is absolutely absurd to believe in evolution without a first cause. That you and I call a guy by the name of God. And that... If you follow the logic of any other world system, this gap is bigger than the Christian gap. And although you and I have to respond to that gap and say, I don't know how God can be all everywhere at once. I don't know how God can always exist. But this gap is so much more, so much smaller logically than any other world system's leap of faith. That it's actually the most logical thing in the world. To believe this story. And it's illogical. It's a greater stretch of logic to go anywhere else. But here's the thing Paul says, I didn't come and reason that with you. I didn't, I, when I came and when I shared the story with you, I didn't talk to you about how logical this was, how reasonable it was, how much evidence I had, how all the scripture had been written and there were no contradictions about how God had prophesied this thousands of years ago and then it came true to them. I didn't even tell you about it. I didn't, I didn't try to logic you in the kingdom. How come? 
If, 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 if I'm right, if this is such a logical thing, if, there's, if it's just such an amazing thing that Scripture is accurate and true and prophecies came out to be... Why, why not logic everybody into the kingdom? Why didn't Paul logic them into the kingdom? Isn't that a great question? And here's what I will say to you, and I don't like this answer. It's a hard answer for me because the truth is, at the end of the day, I'm a guy who likes logic. I have never seen anybody logiced into the kingdom. I just haven't. I just haven't. I wish I had. I wish I could have argued somebody into being a Christian. But if I did that, it would be a man doing it, wouldn't it? It'd be up to whether or not you and I were persuasive. And at the end of the day, that's not how anybody ever gets to the kingdom. Everybody who's ever made it to the kingdom got there because in their heart... They heard the voice of God. They heard God saying to them, I'm here. And you know I'm here. I don't, I don't, care. I don't care how much you say you believe evolution. I don't care how much you like Hare Krishna. I I'm here. And you know I'm here. And I sent my son. And everyone who's ever come to Christ has come because God drew them. Because God got them that last step in their lives. Not because the preacher was amazing, not because he was persuasive, but because the Spirit of God drew that person. Which simply means this. You and I have people in our lives that we're praying for right now, and you and I need to know why we believe what we believe. Matter of fact, Scripture even says, and I, I won't make you go there, but... 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 simply says, every one of us should know why we believe what we believe. We should be willing to give an answer for our faith. You and I should know Scripture. But at the end of the day, we're not going to ever wrestle someone in the kingdom. God gets that done. That's His job. And so whether or not a person ever becomes a Christian is not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. It's simply you're in my job to tell the story. And when Paul had the chance to tell the story, what did he tell? What did he stick with? It's in the passage. What did he stick with? Jesus and him crucified. He said, I just just stuck with the basics. Because that's what you had to figure out. That there was a God who loved you so much, he wouldn't leave you alone. And he sent his son so that you wouldn't miss him. And at the end of the day, that's what you've got to figure out. Not the Trinity, not, not the uh, incarnation of Jesus and how much God was he and how much man. and God loved you too much to let you miss him and he sent his son to die for you. And let God do the rest. Okay? That should be time. We're pretty close. We're good? Yes? All right. So let's go ahead and stop there. It's an easy place to stop. How, do we have any time? Yes? No? By five minutes? All right, so how about questions? Any questions at all before we take off tonight? All right, go. Microphone. Um, With Paul, I was also thinking that another reason he might have um, portrayed himself as fearful would be that he was a new creation. Everybody knew him as the ruthless person he used to be. 
And now all of a sudden he wanted to show everyone he had changed and now he's humble. Mm-hmm. And because um, it's no longer his life and his way, but now it's God's. Could be. It, it could, that, you know, that could be part of it. Especially for the Jewish community there in, in Corinth, they would have heard of this guy named Saul who had killed Christians. Wasn't this church already believers in Jesus Christ? They are by the time he's writing the letter. They were not believers when he came. Uh, And so what he's referring to when we're reading this passage, he's saying, when I first came to you. And Paul is the guy who led them to Christ. He was the evangelist who came to town and shared the gospel with them for the first time. And that's what he's referring back to in chapter 2. When I came to you, I came with fear. I came with trembling. I came with gentleness. And he's referring back to when he first came on that first missionary journey to them. So this trip, he's kind of making sure they're still on track yeah, with he's him, at, with Jesus. Yeah, what's happening in, in 1 Corinthians when he writes this, he's actually not there. He's writing them a letter. And he's writing them because they've gotten so messed up. They've gotten so far off track. And matter of fact, one of the things we're going to discover as we do this is that 1 Corinthians is the most messed up church in the whole Bible. So that's why it's fun. Because they are messed up. And we're going to learn a lot from their mistakes. Um, I, I've heard that before Corinth, he was in Greece with all the philosophers. And so I'm wondering if there's any of him changing his strategy because he went there, fought them on a philosophical, logical argument, and then comes to Corinth and says, that doesn't work. We yeah. just need to keep, keep the message simple. You know, I, I think that's a great, uh, I think that's a great uh, point. You and I have to be sure as we deliver the gospel that we do it in the right context. And I'm going to tell you that right now what's happening in South America, they're preaching the gospel very differently than what you and I do on a Sunday here. And you and I don't want them to do down there what we do on a Sunday here because what's happening in culture and whatever's happening in that context, you and I have got to be ready to bring the gospel in a way that's appropriate and that's going to touch people's hearts and make them sensitive to it. And I think one of your uh, illustrations may be that uh, as... um, Paul ends up, I believe it's in Athens, at Mars Hill. All of a sudden, he begins to do a very logical debate. Matter of fact, he turns to one of the statues there, to the unknown God, and says, I came all this way to tell you about that God you don't know anything about, and begins to give a very uh, logical argument to them in that moment. And that's what was going to work for those guys. Why do you think uh, Paul left out the resurrection here, or did he just kind of blend it in with the crucifixion? Yeah, I think, I think it's, and that's a great question because in, in it comes out of the fact that, remember we said, what is the gospel? The gospel is that we are sinners, that we need a Savior, that what Jesus did on the cross worked, forgive our sins, that He rose again. You know, that is the context of the gospel. It's, but you've got to remember that an awful lot of the Bible was written conversationally. In other words, it was written in a letter just like you and I are writing a letter. Paul was not necessarily trying to be a theologian in this particular moment. And so he's, he's, he's writing much more like how we would talk to each other. And he's not trying to touch every theological base. And I think that's why he, he's not leaving it out because he forgot it. He's not leaving it out because it's not important. He's just simply saying, hey, I came. I told you this basic story. Jesus died for your sins. That's what I told you. Um, and, th- and that's why it's not there, I think. It's just it, he's having a, a conversation through this letter. And he's just doing it very simply with him. Great question, though. We're good? Hey, guys, thank you. Thank you for coming to study, guys. Let's pray real quick and we'll be done. 
Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you again so much for the opportunity to come. Thank you that the Bible tells us everything that we need to know to be able to live life and live it well and live for you. And God, I ask that you honor uh, each of these people who've come tonight with just the preparation of being able to live that much better for you tomorrow. And uh, we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. See you next. We'll see you Sunday.